This is The Shift Podcast. Hey, it's John Jang, and welcome to The Shift Weekend Podcast. And on this episode, Mo Amir, a 980 CKNW contributor in Vancouver and the host of This Is Van Color Podcast, officially makes his debut appearance as a guest here on The Shift. We talk a little bit about Justin Trudeau. We talk a little bit about snowbirds. And then we talk about the world's longest game, an attempt to play the world's longest game of hockey in order to raise awareness and money for cancer research, and then a conversation with Morgan Hoffman, a digital reporter from ET Canada, regarding the passing of Christopher Plummer, not just a Canadian icon, but indeed a legend that will leave behind an incredible legacy on the industry. Remember, if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. That way you can stay up to date on all things related to The Shift. And us also includes a guest that I am so excited to introduce, making his debut on The Shift for the very first time. If you live in BC, if you listen to 980 CKW here in Vancouver across the Lower Mainland, you might already be quite familiar with this guest. But uh, let me please introduce you on The Shift for the very first time, Mo Amir, contributor on 980 CKW and host of the This Is Van Color podcast. Mo, thank you so much for joining us here tonight, man. John, how you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. And uh, very happy that you could be with us here. Our listeners have been, um, uh, you know, humming and hawing. They're, they're, they're listening to me, you know, plump your tires here a little bit. And they must be wondering, oh, oh I can't wait to see what Mo has to say. So, uh, you know what? This almost feels like a reunion of long lost brothers to me. I got to be honest. But then I find out that you don't like olives on your nachos. I'm Come sorry. On, I'm sorry. I just, I, I, I kind of grew up never experiencing olives and they are an acquired taste. Fair enough, fair enough. So I guess we won't be sharing olives once we can finally get together. Just no, beers. no. But, you know, in that case, if I ever get nachos with olives on them, I will happily slide them over to you instead. <laughs> and I will order. You'll know. Uh, yeah, I will order chicken wings and we can we can still be friends. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect. Now, Mo, uh, one thing that, um, you know, our CKNW listeners here in Vancouver know very well is that uh, you do the Van Color Moment, which is where you provide uh, usually two minute long clips uh, that air uh, throughout the week on 980 CKNW. And you share certain takes and opinions that you have about things that are happening in current events. In the next segment, we're going to get into one of those clips and we'll play it back. The one that aired quite recently this week on the uh, on the show. But... This hot take of yours that has to do with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, didn't necessarily go to air, but it's something that I'm sure, as you know, seeing uh, it's on your Twitter, has gotten so much traction and so many responses. So I didn't want to be the one who spoiled and, and revealed what this take was. So take it away. What is your take when it comes to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the notion of the COVID-19 vaccines in Canada? Well, I... I think we should start at the beginning, right? Like there's been a lot of bad news around the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. when we say bad news, we're hearing that there's going to be production slowdowns in Europe for the Pfizer vaccine. Yesterday, Major General Danny Fortin basically threw up his arms and said he didn't even know when the next batch of the Moderna vaccine was going to come in the weeks ahead. So there's a lot of uncertainty. We're also hearing that Europe might institute some export controls, which means that those companies might not even be able to export those vaccines to Canada. And all of our vaccines are coming from Europe, even though there is a, a Pfizer facility 200 kilometers away from the border. Everything that we're getting so far for Pfizer and Moderna is coming from Europe. So we're really dependent on that trade lane. So obviously the slowdown's happening. Everyone's quite worried. And what you started to see in the media, particularly this week, but even starting last week, 
was commentators saying that it's a failure. Trudeau has failed us and really kind of throwing in the towel. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been saying is, and this is, I guess, where the hot take is, Trudeau gave us his first benchmark for the end of March. And he's saying there's going to be an an additional 400, uh, sorry, an additional 4 million vaccines in Canada by the end of March. Right. right. So all I'm saying is, listen, let's have faith in our prime minister because we want him to do well. We want those doses here, right? So we should cheer this on and let's assess at the end of March. And you know what? If we don't get, I I said three and a half million. I said, you know, give him some space. But if we don't get three and a half million new doses by the end of March, I think he has to resign. Right. And I think that uh, that especially the latter part of that tweet and this point that you're making, that's the one that got people kind of fired up, because even I, even though you you, uh, you you insinuate like you even wrote in the tweet to begin with, like you trust that it's going to happen. You trust that mm-hmm. and you're placing faith in the system, the way it's working out right now, that it's going to happen. But if it doesn't, well, like any good business or any good company is run, if there is something happening along the chain lines, you have to run it all the way to the top. And the top of the country is, of course, the prime minister's office. So he has to be the one accountable for something as important as the vaccines here in Canada. Absolutely. And I do trust him and I'm cheering him on and I want it to happen. I'm a little skeptical, obviously. I mean, the numbers are not good. When you look at the independent reports, it does not look good. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to throw in the towel yet. He set his own benchmark for the end of March, saying 4 million more vaccines, and we should wait for that. Now, the reason why this is really important, it's not just a delay. We've already vaccinated a lot of people. A lot of people have got their first dose, about a right. million people in, all, in the entire country, right? And... When it comes to the provinces and then when you filter down to the health authorities, they're all kind of dependent on the information that they're getting from the federal government in terms of the supply coming into the country and how to plan. And the federal government told everyone, administer as many doses as possible. Don't store any for a second dose. More will be coming. So just administer those first doses. And we have a situation where these two vaccines in particular, Pfizer and Moderna, They were endorsed and authorized by Health Canada based on a 20-something day uh, uh, period between the first dose and the second dose, right? Mm -hmm. So Pfizer is, I think, 21 days. Moderna is 28 days. And then we heard, no, no, you can still get away with 30-something days. Right. And now we're at 42 days. And data only exists for 42 days being between the first dose and the second dose. So if... We start to get people who are going beyond that 42 days, we really don't know what that does to the effectiveness. And I think what you're going to start seeing is if that happens, and I hope it doesn't, this idea of a third dose, a booster for the booster. Yeah. And when you start to get in this situation where, you know, that first dose maybe was kind of wasted, that's a big screw up. And I mean, and, and fair enough, like this is a big project, but. Politicians love to take credit <laughs> when they do something good. And even if it's, you know, by fortune that something good happens. And I think I'm one of those guys, you can call me a populist, but I also believe that they should be accountable right. for when things don't go their way. And this is a big screw up if we don't get those second doses 
for those people that have already had the first dose. Yeah, I think uh, some of the numbers that I was looking up just in regards to how many first doses have gone out across the country were sitting at around a million, as you're talking about. The number mm-hmm. that I saw was closer to 887,000, but you know, it, it's around a million. But the number of second doses is severely lagging behind. And, and we know there's reason for it. After all, uh, you have that window that you're talking about. So the, sec- the amount of second doses that Canada is currently sitting on, based on the numbers that I looked up, is around 155,000. And yeah, so not good. <laughs> that's not good. And and there is now um, I mean according to some of the more more recent reports and some of the concerns shared by health officials here in British Columbia and I'm certain uh, I'm sure it's going to be shared across by uh, the rest of uh, the health officials across Canada is that the South African variant of COVID-19 may not be completely suppressed or you know may not be completely nullified by these certain uh, vaccines. And so it creates an even greater complication. If this vaccine, uh, if these two vaccines aren't totally effective against a certain variant of this of this virus, then, you know, do any of these numbers, you know, do they even really matter? Because you can have you can have four million yeah. of these vaccines, but if they're not working against a certain variant and that variant continues to spread, well, it doesn't really matter how many you have. Yeah, that's really the scary part is the the. Uh the variants that are out there and and the truth is we don't know for certain that's right there is some optimism i talked to jason tetro from the super awesome science show this week on my podcast this is van color and you know he had some room for optimism that perhaps some of these variants would be covered by the existing vaccines but the truth is there's no certainty because they're new right like there's no testing or oh absolutely yeah whether they not whether they do or not so That's something that, of course, is out of the prime minister's control. I think the important thing for the public to know, and I think the prime minister also has to uh, communicate this, and the governments, including our provincial governments, have to communicate this. We still might have to social distance and do a lot of the same protocols that we're doing right now because we don't know the extent of of effectiveness of these vaccines against these variants, right? So it doesn't mean that you get the vaccine and then you can live your life as per quote unquote normal. Right. I think there still is going to be a transition period where we have to see, you know, is are these variants still spreading? And that is scary. It's definitely scary because, uh, we're, I mean, you know, you hear that saying, you, you're, you're, uh, you're most afraid or you fear the unknown. And right now, mm-hmm. all of us, we're kind of in this gray area together. Uh, we're just kind of leading one another, hopefully, into safety, into normalcy again. But we just don't I think know. You're starting to, I think you're starting to feel – I'm just getting the mood in general. Like there's yeah. just a lot of frustration right now. And that's why, I mean, my tweet, even though it has this like ultimatum <laughs> flavor to it – it's it's actually telling people to chill out for a little bit. Like, right. Let's make it to that first benchmark, which the prime minister himself is projecting and is saying we're going to meet despite the production slowdowns. He's saying we're going to meet it. So let's just chill out until we get to that point and then see what happens. Because, you know, we've been in this thing for basically a year now in BC at least. I think it's going to be another year. Mm-hmm. I think we should at least mentally prepare for that. I think we kind of had this euphoria when uh, the photo ops were happening that the vaccine arrived here, but I still think it's a long haul and I hope it's not any longer. But I think while uh, the the vaccines are being distributed throughout the country, I think Trudeau also has to manage expectations a little bit. And, you know, three, uh, four million doses by March is he being optimistic or is is he being honest? Right. If he's being optimistic and he's just saying that to, you know, quell media criticism, 
uh, that's a bad move. I yes. think we need brutal honesty right now in the middle of a pandemic. And 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 I've been making that point on the show over the past number of weeks is that uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to the case of like Dr. Bonnie Henry and you're you're coming up with restrictions, I made the point like just don't have an end date. That way you're getting people's yeah. hopes up unfortunately. And so just just treat it like a band-aid. Just rip it off nice and quick. Don't peel it slowly where it's painful each and every time at least be adults about it and mature enough uh, that, that we can handle the truth and just be honest with us. So I think what you're saying about uh, all that, it, it makes sense to me. And, uh, you know, there's seven weeks to go until the end of March. So fingers crossed. To make a further point about your optimism, six months ago, seven months ago, the notion of even having a vaccine in Canada was mm-hmm. still like a year away, according to most experts' timeline. So we're at a point now where we're just debating about the quantity of vaccine. So it tells you breakthroughs can happen, good things can happen. So fingers crossed, uh, we're not talking about the need for the prime minister to resign, although that possibility still very much uh, remains out there. I- I'll say this. This is his single, this is his single biggest test as prime minister. Absolutely it is. And, and this is the big one. I mean, Here's the truth. People have been calling him to resign over SNC, over the blackface revelations, right. over uh, We Charity. But this is the real test. This is in real time. It's happening right now. And this is where he proves himself to be a competent leader or not. And and I understand when people say, hey, he doesn't control the supply chain. Fair. But he, he and his team have to be on this 100% of the time. They have to be honest with the public. They have to set the expectations. That's right. And the truth is, when you look at the numbers, we're a G7 country. We're a top 10 world economy. We are really behind on a lot of this stuff. And it is kind of shameful. And I'm hoping that it's just kind of a blip for us and we can catch up. That's sort of the impression that the prime minister has left us. And I trust him on that. But if it's not, and we continue to be this far behind... Uh, He's got to go. It's shameful. Hey, folks, I'm Mo Amir. This is CKNW, and this is your Van Color Moment. As a millennial, my generation has had to endure being told to cut back on avocado toast and fancy coffee, all while perpetually checking our own privilege. So when the Canadian Snowbird Association, yeah, that's a real thing, started whining about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's announcement that all arriving travelers in Canada would have to quarantine in a government-approved hotel for up to three days at a cost of $2,000 per person, I... I dusted off the world's smallest violin. Despite literally being told for a year not to travel, Canadians who live abroad for the winter are now begging Ottawa to waive the $2,000 mandatory hotel stay, because otherwise they would be trapped in their sun-kissed second homes. But, but, New Zealand doesn't charge money for managed isolation. Well, they also have a national wizard, and their last COVID death was nine months ago. And the mandatory quarantine hotel fee isn't even implemented yet. You should be hauling butt back north, Snowbird. You still have time. Now, I'm fine with waiving fees for bereavement or other extenuating circumstances, but vacationers, Instagram travel influencers, and Albertan MLAs don't quite meet that criteria. When the federal government is spending nearly a million dollars on an ad campaign to advise Canadians not to travel and you're coming back from weeks or months of drinking margs in your boy shorts
shorts and flippy floppies, then you're gonna have to pony up that two grand, baby. But no big deal. Just save some money by cutting back on guacamole and lattes. This has been your Van Color Moment with Mo Amir on 980 CKNW. Oh, that is just brilliant stuff. There's so many ways that we can go into that, uh, Mo, but I just want to give you a chance to uh, encore, encore performance here, sir. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a live performance, but <laughs> the Canadian Snowbirds Association, that's a real thing. I can't hey, believe that. Dues. Yeah, I can't believe that's an actual <laughs> real thing. But, you know, I guess uh, if, if, you, if you're used to traveling somewhere warm during the wintry months, Boy, is your is your are your feathers ruffled right now? Oh boy, oh goodness. So here's the thing, you know, I do like pointing out cultural hypocrisies. And, mm-hmm. and John, I believe you're a millennial just like me. You yes, might sir. be a younger millennial yep. though. But you know, we've heard this whole time, like, oh, you millennials, you waste your money, you spend it on avocados and lattes and all this <laughs> other stuff. And, you know, part of it is like, what money? Like, first of all, there's not a lot to start with. <laughs> yep. And there's this myth that like if we didn't in have these little indulgences you know we'd be in huge homes with a pool and the math doesn't add up like you can look into it you're not gonna be able to afford a down payment just by skipping brunch right so i just you know it really grinds my gears when older generations complain about small tax increases or in this case what i think is a totally fair and reasonable fee so that you're not putting the public at risk and there's enough notice for snowbirds to come back like it's not implemented yet and we don't even know when it's going to be implemented it's so they have plenty of time to come back and and not pay that but you know they're very upset obviously and, and they're saying it's their second home and it should be treated like that and they're being discriminated against and for me and i think probably a lot of canadians i, I just don't buy it i think it's a, a very high sense of entitlement right and, and it's one of those things that we've seen through this pandemic right like it's, it's been mask off on entitlement whether it's rod baker who went up to beaver creek yukon to skip the line or it's all these different politicians that uh, went on vacation some we're warm after telling us to stay at home and not even see our families over the holidays. For sure. And and of course, it's important to point out that essential travel bypasses all of these restrictions. And it's only mm-hmm. the non-essential travelers that have to face this. And I feel like it's more than fair. But, you know, I, I just to play devil's advocate for just a quick minute, mm-hmm. there will be Please. some who say the rich don't have to worry because you know two thousand dollars is is nothing for them whereas the uh the the hard-working canadian couple that just wants to get away and and go down to their second home that they've been working hard at and they've got a mortgage and all these things two thousand dollars might more uh, what might hurt them more in their wallets than somebody who might be you know a a baker uh, you know somebody uh, not like an actual baker but you know what i'm talking about like if you're if you're a multi-million dollar person then you can afford two thousand dollars it's nothing more than just a slap on the wrist You know, if we want to make this fee progressive and charge you based on your net income or your gross assets, I'm all for that. But I think the reality is literally for a year, Mm -hmm. we've been told don't travel. And that includes not going to your second home. And I understand some people have different circumstances. And like I said, you know, I hope there's exceptions for bereavement or, you know, medical procedures, which I, I believe medical procedures falls under uh, essential travel. But we've had a year, you know, and, and if you're really complaining about this, you have time to get back. 
just do it. Stop complaining. You know, I'm sorry you can't spend the entire winter <laughs> in Arizona or in Vegas or wherever you are. Just come back and, and, and then you don't have to pay it. Right? Uh, and exactly. And as a millennial, I might not have the world's smallest violin like you might, Mo, but I have the world's <laughs> smallest studio where I will write angry emails on their behalf if they really are looking for uh, that kind and of assistance. And every Friday, I'll be ranting angrily <laughs> right here on CKNW. There you go. And if you want to check out the podcast, this is Van Color. Please do. Awesome. And John, you got to come on at some point. You yes. got to grow out on my podcast. I would love to do it. I would love to do it. It'll be the worst rated show you'll ever have, but I will, will do it not. for you. Stop. <laughs> he is Mo Amir. He is the host of This Is Van Color. Mo, thank you so much. Thank you, man. It was my pleasure. Have a good night. This is the Shift Podcast. For now, though, I, I want to talk about another sporting event, another sport altogether. It's a game of hockey with a great cause. And this has nothing to do with the NHL. Instead, we are talking about the world's longest game. It's an attempt to achieve a new world record for the longest game of hockey while raising money for cancer research. The current record is sitting at 241 hours long. But the feeling here is that they can do better. So joining us now is the organizer of the world's longest game. His name is Brent Sake. Brent, appreciate you giving us some time here tonight on The Shift. Well, thank you very much. I, I listen to your show all the time, and I'm finally on it because it's hard to get in that show on the phone lines. <laughs> all right, we're going to have to talk with either Matt or Leo about getting you on the program more often. Now that we know uh, that you're a shift head, uh, we're going to have to make sure your number gets through. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> all right, so we've got you on the show here tonight because you're about to start something called the World's Longest Game, and it's not the first time you've done this. In fact, you're already in the Guinness Book of World Records, but... Take us through exactly what is going on here and why this is so important to you and the community. Well, I'll, uh, I'll try not to make it too long, but in '03, uh, we started this project. This is our seventh longest hockey game, uh, Guinness World Record long hockey game, and uh, we play two longest baseball games now. And, and everything we're doing this for is to raise money for, uh, for cancer, be it research or equipment over the years. Um, it... It's always been kind of a mandate of mine. When my father passed away of cancer, I was 20 years old, and he told me to keep the kids out of the Cross Cancer Institute, and I've been trying to do that as best as I can. And, I grew up, and then, uh, unfortunately, after the first game, just as we finished playing the 03 game, my wife died of cancer, and then my aunt a week later, and just it uh, it became something that uh, that I couldn't run away from, obviously, and. Uh, um, I, my family and I have just basically said this is something that we have to do for the rest of our lives. Let's raise some money. And over the years, the stuff that we've done is, is I'm so thankful for all the warriors that do these things and the volunteers and everything. But we've we've been able to do things that change lives and saves lives. And I'm watching kids grow up from 18 years ago. There was a, a little boy that was going to die, and we we had this little. Uh, I don't know, it was a centrifuge for liver cancer. And there's not a lot of research in liver, liver cancer for kids. So they didn't have equipment. So they bought this thing and uh, he was going to die like within months, but no lie. We just talked to him recently. So it's amazing to see something like that. And when that store is one of many, um, either fortunately or unfortunately, how you look at it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep doing it because it's, it's helping. <laughs> 
First of all, let me just say that I uh, I'm so sorry that you've you've gone through such heavy losses uh, in your family from such an awful thing like cancer. At the same time, you know it takes a very special person to be able to turn something as uh, heartbreaking and as difficult and as emotionally taxing as as something like that, and then realizing you have an opportunity to turn it into a positive and turning it into an opportunity where you can give back and make sure that this doesn't happen anywhere else. And indeed, what you've done, as you say, you have saved lives. You have poured uh, incredible amounts of money into cancer research. So if anything, there is a silver lining here, indeed a blessing in disguise. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and it's not just me. It's, uh, it takes 800 volunteers per game to put this on. Um, and for, of course, the 40 players that play in the game, um, and the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that donate uh, to the game. So it just happens to be at my house. And trust me, like I'm no martyr here. By the end of the game, I don't want people around my house anymore. It's time for them to leave. <laughs> well, I can understand that for sure, especially with what's uh, going on in the world right now with COVID-19 and the whole need for social distancing and all that. But, uh, you know. I think we can all understand that part. That's created uh, uh, a, a small challenge for us, but uh, we're very lucky. The uh, government and the HS, when I told them I wanted to do this, they instantly said, that's uh, probably not going to happen. Of course, we wanted it to happen, and, and we had great conversations, and it, uh, it took about a three-month period to chat and see what was, was actually doable, and um, and I said, I can make that happen. These guys are that committed to this. And so the steps that we've had to take to play this game during this time has been, uh, it's been important and uh, but doable. So we're going to make it happen. Now, for some of our listeners who are based out of Alberta, and I know we happen to have a lot of listeners in Alberta, whether it's in Edmonton or near Calgary, uh, for those that might be closer to Sherwood Park, you know, maybe in years past, they would have been able to maybe come down in person, maybe cheer on some of the players playing these hockey games. But because of COVID-19 and everything to do with that, it's probably not going to be happening this time. Yeah, this time we can't have fans. Uh in past games, we'd have maybe 10,000 people driving through our yard and staying and cheering us on a day. And uh, this time, what we're asking uh, is for people to still drive through the yard. I got a kind of little driveway area where you can drive around the rink and, and watch the game for a few minutes as you drive around and uh, and bring a uh, um, like a donation amount. And, and we, what we'd really love is if people would bring a picture of... Uh, people they want us to play for, loved ones and friends that have survived cancer and unfortunately friends that have passed away. The volunteers outside of our bubble are going to laminate those pictures and put them around the rink. So hopefully we have lots of people visiting and the fans will have or will be pasted up to the screen around our rink, which I'm looking forward to. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, in that sense, it's still very much a community effort as you say the volunteers that are involved the players that are involved and for those that are just spectating uh obviously a little trickier to do that this year but you can still get involved that way and so i suppose brent if people are curious if they want to learn more if they want to make an online donation uh the best place to do that would be to visit the website absolutely worldlongestgame.ca um and if you have questions there's an email there's uh I, I I enjoy when I get emails there and uh, just let's talk. I want I want to hear people's stories. I want to share people's stories and uh, all the good ones and all the bad ones and kind of 
get through this all together through this little process. Now, before we let you go, I was just so curious to learn more about the logistics of putting this all together, because anyone who's played even a little bit of beer league hockey knows one of the hardest things to try and do on a consistent basis is finding enough goaltenders to get through even like a weekend tournament. So now that you've decided you're going to put on the world's longest hockey game, I'm curious, have you managed to uh, find uh, all the amount of players, all the necessary amount of goaltenders? Because I got to imagine that's that's got to be a bit of a challenge. Never. It's never been a challenge. The I have a list of a thousand people waiting to play, and I've always joked around about this that there's it's easier to crack an NHL lineup than this one. It's generally the same people that just keep coming and do it. Uh, every year we have a turnover of maybe two or three. Uh, this year we do have a larger turnover. Just unfortunately, people with work and stuff like that weren't able to do it. But um, friends of friends and. Everybody I know has always asked me if I see them, you let me know if I get one chance to play, I'll take it. And they always do. Love hearing that. And again, it shows how involved the community gets with this each and every time, each and every year. More details if you'd like to make a donation, if you want to just learn more, worldslongestgame.ca. Now, before we finally let you go, and I know I already promised this, just about the attempt that's happening now. 10 straight days of non-stop hockey. Can you just provide some of the specific details uh, of what's going to be happening over the next week and a bit? Yep, 40 players can't leave. It's the record. Uh, we have the current record right now at 251 hours, and uh, we're going to play 252 hours this time. All right, perfect. Brent, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. I know I can speak on behalf of every one of our shift heads who are listening. We've all got our fingers crossed. We've all got our expectations high. We know you're going to pull through, you and all the players involved with the world's longest game. More details online, worldslongestgame.ca. Thank you so much for this, and uh, best of luck out there. Thanks for having us. It's the Shift Podcast. Now let's let's get into a, a bit more of you know we, we like to have a fun show. It's a weekend show here on the shift. With, whenever I'm here with Leo, and and we try to understand our positioning. It's a Friday night or Saturday morning, depending on where you are. And I know it's not always fun to hear about hard, heavy stuff, but we can't ignore the passing of Christopher Plummer. Uh, the news that such a beloved icon in the industry had passed away leaves an incredible legacy on the industry as a whole, but certainly a gaping hole now. To learn more about the great Christopher Plummer, uh, we're now joined by Morgan Hoffman, digital reporter for ET Canada. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us tonight here on The Shift. Oh, of course, of course. Really wish we could have you here on the show under more happier, positive, joyful circumstances, but uh, we do have you joining us tonight because... We need to talk about something very tragic and very sad, something we learned earlier in the day, and that is the passing of a Canadian icon. Yeah, so that's a Canadian icon legend, Christopher Plummer. He passed away at the age of 91, peacefully at his home in, Con- in Connecticut, uh, with his wife of 53 years, Elaine Taylor, by his side. Um, it's just it's just heartbreaking because so many of us um, have watched Christopher Plummer over the years. He's had this amazing career. He worked up you know, he, he worked in films to the very end. Um, that was always his goal. He never wanted to retire. Uh, he's even made comments about how he wanted to die on stage. Um, so this is someone who just loved his job, loved acting. And for so many of us, I mean, when you hear the name Christopher Plummer, you think of The Sound of Music. Um, I watch that movie every year during the holidays. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's, it's an iconic role of his. Even if he 
didn't love that film, which he has said he was appreciative of the opportunity and what it gave him in his career, but didn't wasn't a huge fan of the movie, but he did love Julie Andrews in it. Um, so it's just, you know, when you hear Christopher Plummer, I think everyone in my household, we all went, oh, you know, love him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. You're aware of his age, but you never think it's going to happen. And when it does, like today, uh, it's just a blow to your heart because you're not really expecting it. And, you know, when we talk about Christopher Plummer and all that he meant to the industry, it's one thing to call him an actor, but I'm wondering if maybe it's more appropriate and more fitting that when we look back at the career that he had, we use the word thespian to describe exactly what he meant, not just on the film and in television, but certainly all that he accomplished on the stage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about his career, he started on stage in in the 50s, he had his first um, uh, first feature film in 1958, and then it's just continued on. I mean, he just, he absolutely loved the stage. He played iconic Shakespearean roles at the Stratford Festival. Um, he was so proud of his Canadian roots. I mean, this is someone who becomes, you know, a star in 1965 after The Sound of Music and continued to go back to the Stratford Festival in Canada, not just doing Broadway work, um, you know, working in New York, working working in England, but, like, came back to the Stratford Festival, to Canada, to, to um, play iconic roles throughout his career. So, yeah, he just – it's so funny when you read all of the comments that are being made from actors, from celebrities, and, and working with him, and, and they just call him such a gentleman, uh, you know, and they don't make him like that anymore, and, and, and just someone who had so much energy and strength even towards the very end. He has so many awards and so many accolades to his name and to his credit, but it's important to highlight that as Christopher Plummer got older, he still retained such a high level with his art and his craft and his ability to just immerse himself into these roles. So when you look at 2012, in his 80s, that's actually when he won an Academy Award for his role in Beginners. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild when you think of you know, how successful he's been his whole life. But then when you look at him in his 80s, um, yeah, Beginners is a wonderful film. He won Best Supporting Actor, um, became the oldest to win an Oscar at 82. Um, then he goes on in 2017 to replace Kevin Spacey in All the Money in the World, gets nominated um, for his work in that at the Oscars and the Golden Globes. So it, it just seemed to, it, it, it almost seemed like he's that kind of actor that, was always just going to keep working. Um, in 2019, he was on global TV show Departure. He was a lead in that show. Um, so you see him going from movies to TV, and then, of course, in Knives Out, which came out in 2019 as well. He was so good in that movie. Um, so you would almost argue that he had his best roles while he was in his 80s. Which is incredible to think about, because when you hear the saying, and you know, maybe you joke about it with your friends, I'm sure we've all heard this before, that saying, you only get better with age. Well, Christopher Plummer was the living proof that such a thing is actually real. Like, it's actually true. It does happen uh, as long as you maintain an elite commitment to what it is that you do for work or what you do for a living. It, absolutely. And, you know, not just professionally, but personally as well. I mean, he always spoke so highly of his wife, Elaine, who he married in 1970. You know, they have this wonderful life together. Um you know, when he won his Oscar uh, at 82, you know, just in the speech talking about basically making him who he is every day, keeping him positive. So he just seemed like such a, a, 
a happy person, even in all the interviews. I mean, sure, you can turn it on for the interviews, but you didn't really get that sense with him. I mean, he's very honest. He's very real. Um, He's not sugarcoating the fact that he didn't love the sound of music. So, you know, he's a pretty honest guy. Um, And he just always seemed so happy and and just loved his work and just wanted to keep working. I mean, if you think of all those movies and all those TV roles, like, that that takes a lot of energy. So the fact that he kept going, uh, and he was 91, and I think he was even supposed to start work again. Um, obviously, he didn't get there. But, yeah, that he was just going to keep working. I love that. And when you build up the kind of repertoire and cachet as Christopher Plummer did, it gives you the ability to look back on something as iconic as The Sound of Music and admit that while it wasn't his favorite project, he appreciated how much it meant to so many people, even now until this day, as you even said. Absolutely. All right. She is Morgan Hoffman, digital reporter for ET Canada. Morgan, thank you so much for giving us some time here on the show tonight and just helping us uh, look back and uh, really commemorate the life and legacy that was Christopher Plummer. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm now going to go watch The Sound of Music. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great choice, something uh, that maybe we should all be doing this weekend, at least making some plans. I know, Leo, you mentioned uh, your mother is a big fan of Christopher Plummer's performance in A Sound of Music. Yeah, it's her, it's her favorite movie. Oh, it's there you like, go. She watched many times. She was watching uh, the Brazilian news. It's, oh, my God. And, and she, didn't she call you today with the, when she heard yeah. about Christopher Plummer? Yeah, yeah, she called. Yeah, right after she heard about, oh, Christopher Plummer. I, she said, like, I I didn't know he was Canadian. Right. Yeah, well, like most people, like, uh, you know, like if in Brazil, they, they tend to assume if they hear people speaking English, they're either going to be American or Brit or British. Oh, really? So it's like, oh, I didn't know he was Canadian. And I'm like, now she knows that I live here. So, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. But Yeah. I mean, it's it's sad. Like I said, I was watching Knives Out. That's the, uh, the most recent movie featuring uh, Christopher Plummer that I got to see. And and now going back, I'm gonna have to rewatch that one as well, just so I can appreciate that. You know, for me, that was the last time I saw him on any kind of performance, and, yeah. and so it, it gives you maybe a better understanding, or at least a better appreciation uh, for the project in itself. This is the Shift Podcast. For now, let's get into it. Another edition of Learning Portuguese with Leonardo. Hola, Shift heads! It's time to learn Portuguese with Leonardo. Ah, yes. The classiest experience you can find on the Shift Weekend Edition with John Jang and Leonardo Cuello. All right, Leo. So here we are back after a two-week break. Oh, actually, just a one-week break. Our last class was two weeks ago. So we've got some things in the news this week that I'm hoping that we can add a bit more of a Portuguese flair to. So the first phrase I would love to get translated here is the words, until further notice. Uh, it's going to be easy for you this week. I think based looking on what we have so far, I think you will do very well. Okay. So until further notice, you can say até novo aviso. Até novo aviso. Até novo aviso. That is how you say until further notice. And we're saying this today because the BC government, the public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, saying that all social gatherings are now, um, well, they've extended the bans on them. Até 
Oh, sorry. Ate novo aviso until yeah. further notice, which I think is a smart move. It's a smart move. I told Dr. Bonnie Henry to do this on the show like three weeks ago. I said, stop using dates. Just give us an indefinite amount of time because it, you're only getting people's hopes up and then crushing it when you have to extend these orders. So thank you, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Clearly a listener of the shift. I love that. Dr. Bonnie Henry is a shift head. You heard it here first. Ate novo aviso. Moving on. Of course, the sad news that we heard uh, earlier this morning, Canadian icon, legendary actor, Christopher Plummer, passing away, age 91. Rest in peace. How do we say this? Uh, uh, Descanse em paz. Descanse em paz. Yep. Descanse em paz. Jim Jones getting forgetting right the first time. Yeah. Descanse em paz to Christopher Plummer. Yep. We'll miss you, we'll but miss you will him. never be forgotten. All right. Uh, one of the conversations we had earlier in the show tonight is uh, with Brent Sake. He's the organizer of the world's longest game. Of course, it's currently underway in Sherwood Park, Alberta. So, Leo, how do we say the world's longest game? O jogo mais longo do mundo. Oh, man, that rolls. Okay, hold yeah. on. O jogo mais longo do, do mundo. mundo. Yeah, John's getting the, o the jogo mais longo do mundo. There you go. That sounds, that, that's fun. Yeah, like you, you sounded like a play-by-play broadcaster because tonight we're going to have <laughs> o jogo mais longo do mundo. Ah, yeah. maybe in another life. O jogo mais longo do mundo. Tonight, live from Edmonton. Oh, I love it. Love <laughs> it. That's fun. That, that See, that rolls off. Okay. Uh, we got some listener requests now. This one from Catherine in Surrey who wanted to know how to say, I talked to my mother today. Uh, eu falei com minha mãe ontem. Yo, oi, ei falei com minha mãe. Com minha mãe, mãe ontem. ontem. Yeah. Ei falei com minha mãe. Tried to say eu instead of ei. Ei, eu. Eu. Ei means another thing. Oh, ei okay. means like when you're calling somebody, hey, you say ei. Oh. Portuguese. So eu falei com minha. Com minha. Com minha. My my ontem. ontem. Okay, yeah. all right. Got to practice that one a little bit. Yeah. This one, this next one should be easier. Uh, this one was requested by Nighthawk Steve since we were talking about it just moments ago. How do you say hot chocolate? Uh, chocolate quente. Chocolate quente. Quente. Chocolate quente. Yes. Chocolate quente. Yeah, boy. All right. Uh, that's fun. That one's fun too. Uh, and this one from Steve, Be My Valentine. Leo, this is useful for you. Uh, yeah. So now, because there, there's a, the gender attached to it, right. so there are two versions. So if you're saying to a guy, you're going to say, Seja meu namorado. Seja meu namorado. Yeah, that's why if you're saying to a to a guy like yeah you know you're interested in a guy so you want you want the, the guy to be your one so you're gonna say to him seja meu namorado seja meu namorado. Now if you're saying to a girl, uh, you're gonna say seja minha namorada. Seja minha namorada. Yes. Seja meia namorada. Do you remember both versions now to say Seja that? Seja meio namorado. There, there you go. That's Seja meia namorada. Yeah. Minha. Just, just fix it. Minha. 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 Yes. Yeah, there you go. Minha. minha. All right. So these, these, these get a little bit trickier. But, uh, you know, so if Leo, if, if anyone listening is interested in taking Leo out on a Valentine's date, the correct way to ask him 
is Seja Mayu Namorado. Exactly. And if Leo had found a, a, a you know a, a beautiful woman, uh, just happens to be walking down the street as he's finishing work here tonight, and he says, "You know what? I got to take my shot." Leo would be saying, "Seja minha namorada." So I'm getting close to it. I'm working. Hey, hey, no rush, man. You can't rush love. You can't. No, I can't. Otherwise, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna. I have a lot to lose. But yeah, it's, you can't it's rush all love. Working progress. All right, eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. In regards to the question, uh, which sport would be the most fun to have in space? Uh, we got this one saying UFC. UFC for the morbidly obese. Come on, that's not nice. UFC alone in space would be kind of interesting just by itself, just because you could. I don't know. Start. Twisting and, and, and flailing in the air, and you wouldn't have to worry about gravity. But then that might be a disadvantage to some fighters, right? Because ground and pound is a real strategy. And if you all of a sudden can't get anyone on the ground because gravity's not there to help you, hmm, how does that help? Uh, bowling would be interesting with low gravity. That would be indeed uh, quite different because you would literally have to just like shot put. The can the the cannonballs the the bowling balls uh, down the the down the lane into the into the pins. So I think that would require some strategy. Tavara says badminton or volleyball on Mars would be quite funny. I agree. Yeah, it, it would be a little bit more interesting. Maybe maybe more tennis. I'm thinking because badminton the um, the the birdies they don't travel very far. So I wonder if the fact that there isn't gravity would make it travel more. Difficult? I don't know. I'm not a physics expert, but maybe tennis. I'd be interested to see how tennis works. Uh, Derek suggesting cricket, maybe some curling. Uh, Steve in Northland saying, easy, John. Baseball is a great game. It's fantastic the way it is. Sorry, that's Nighthawk, Steve. So my apologies. That's my guy. Baseball, hey, I said baseball is fun to watch in person. Well, you say it was boring on TV. It is is boring on TV. This is not a sports show because if it was, we we would be in a huge debate here. Oh, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. It's it's the slowest sport. It's the slowest sport on TV. (laughs) That's why when you're listening to play-by-play of a baseball game, you're better off listening to radio play-by-play. Because they will give you stories, they'll fill the time, they can, you know, make it all make sense. Whereas on TV, you're just like sitting there and you're thinking, Slow doesn't mean that it's bad. Like, why everything has to be quick? Why you have to rush out things? (laughs) Well, I mean, you make a point. Like in the NFL... You know, there's always like every down is a is a new play, right? And it takes time to, you know, you got to run to the line of scrimmage and then you got to get into formation. Then you got to call the play. And then all of a sudden, like it, that takes time. But it's 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 it, it happens in sequences that is easy to digest. Whereas with baseball, it's like, oh, we're at the top of the inning and then now we're at the bottom of the inning. And then, oh, we're going back up to the top of the inning. It's all over. And, you know, it, it just keeps going. I don't know. It's very strategic. I, I I like it a lot. Like, hey, people after the Queen's Gambit, like everybody was back again on chat. So because it, and, and it's great, a great game because it's a very strategic. But the thing with baseball yeah. is that it can take a long time to finish a game. Yeah, well, right. So and, for chess and and football too, well, because of the commercials. Oh, actually, the commercials overrun the, the the length of the game. If you just take the place, you can yeah, watch well, the yeah, whole game. Yeah, well, yeah, a game of football, uh, like the actual runtime of a football game, I think only on average takes like twenty minutes. Yeah, because like that, that's all the plays: first, second, third, fourth quarters. But a game of baseball, especially in the playoffs, 
we have seen marathon games go on like close to six hours sometimes and no one's having fun at that point. Nobody's having fun. Not the person who bought a ticket for two games at the price of one and certainly not the players and the people on TV, the poor camera people. Imagine being a camera operator and you're just like, oh gosh, I hope this doesn't turn into a six hour game. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't had a chance to eat yet. I got to go to the bathroom. Like all these things are going through your mind and you got to, you know, record the game. We can have a debate one day. One day. What is the most boring sport to watch on TV? That alone might also be uh, quite basketball. Quite a really. You think basketball? Oh, okay, all right. You might have some points there. You might have some points. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.